I'm Bob Main, and I want to welcome you to another episode of today's Survival Show. Helping you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. This is a practical, common sense, no tinfoil hat type of survival and prepping show, because that's just the kind of guy I am. This is episode number 242, to be exact. I think I'm back to putting these out on a weekly basis. I'm going to do the best I can anyway, uh, because a lot of you know the challenges I'm going through, but... These last couple weeks, I've had an opportunity to get these out. The last one was a little bit late, but I got it out there anyway. Okay, well, this week, this is going to be kind of an interesting episode here. It uh, could be kind of controversial. Some people could think that this is a bit controversial based on their way of thinking. But was Cliven Bundy bullied? Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, he's the Nevada rancher that recently kind of had a run-in with the federal government. I brought Glenn Tate, the author of the book series, 299 Days, and also possibly the movie series, 299 Days, possibly. And we're going to talk about Kickstarter.com towards the end of this episode, how you can help make that happen. But if you've been reading Glenn's books, 299 Days, which, by the way, you can buy from my Amazon store, he writes a lot about government bullying. Now, I made a statement last week in last week's podcast, and I had a couple listeners email me and tell me that I was a little bit off when I said that Clive and Bundy was bullied. Now, you're going to hear Glenn and I talk about our opinions on that and what we think. Not that Clive and Bundy is 100% innocent, but we both kind of think that there was some government bullying involved in there, uh, in that whole incident, and you'll hear our reasoning why. Once again, it's not that we believe that Mr. Bundy was completely 100% the good guy because obviously there were some fines and, and fees and things he didn't pay, but the heavy-handedness of the way that the federal government acted in this whole thing should get you as a prepper, you as a survivalist, it should get your attention. Now, towards the end of this interview, Glenn and I also talk about a couple of new guns that he got, and a little bit about history. Okay, so here we go. Glenn Tate, the author of the book series, 299 Days. All right, Glenn Tate's back. Welcome back, Glenn. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. Love coming on. Always. Always. Uh, looks like book eight's a pretty good success. Yeah, it's uh, been very, very well received. There's a lot of action in it and some suspenseful plot um, points, and uh, people are really liking it. And the pace is picking up. I mean, the pace, I think, is pretty good clip um, early on, but now we're getting into the the dramatic battle part of the story, and uh, it's pretty cool. I'm really, really happy with Book 8. I'm very happy with it. Good. Well, that's great. And looking forward to seeing you in August. I want to say something because people have been asking. I fully intend to be there on the 9th to do the shooting class with you and I and Ben. Matter of fact, I've already bought and paid for my plane tickets. So if in case anybody's wondering, I'm, I'm fully intending on being there. No, it's going to be fantastic. The weather in August in western Washington is spectacular. Um, you and I have been uh, talking to the range master uh, at the place we're going to be. Facility, really, it's more than a range, and it's a magnificent place. So 
I'm really, really excited for it. It's circled on my calendar. Terrific. All right. Well, there's a couple of main topics, and I'm, I want to start off with the first one. Uh, as soon as the news broke on the Cliven Bundy Nevada rancher situation and his um, conflict with the Bureau of Land Management, as soon as that started breaking national news, you were one of the first guys I thought of. And you know, you mentioned to me offline that you had some friends on the ground there. That That's true, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me give you a synopsis of what I I kind of have gathered from this whole situation, and then and then you weigh in on it. How's sure. that? Love to. The first question in my mind, Glenn, was: Is this an example of government bullying? Now, you know, you talk about that a lot in your book series. Let me just say, you know, I've done a lot of research on this. I understand. I understand that. Mr. Bundy might not be completely innocent in this situation because I understand that he lost a couple of court cases and supposedly owed, owed the federal government quite a bit of money. In some of the research that I've seen and that I've read, uh, apparently Mr. Bundy's family has been using that land and the cattle, the family's cattle have been grazing that land long before the Bureau of Land Management was even formed. So I can see how he how he feels like he had an assumed right to the property. On the other hand, um, back in 98, if I'm not mistaken, the Bureau of Land Management decided to make that land off limits to protect a desert tortoise. So this is looks kind of convoluted, but whenever I see a federal agency declaring something off limits to a rancher and his family that have been using this for, you know, over a hundred years to protect a desert tortoise looks a little bit like bullying to me. Yeah, I agree, and I, I won't get into a long, you know, discussion of the law. But um, I think that Mr. Bundy is clearly within his rights. Uh, as you mentioned, his family has been grazing, and uh, of course, part of the grazing rights, you know, the water rights come with that. And um, his family has been putting the land to beneficial use, which is a legal term for grazing and for water for about 100 years, and when the the statutes came in that allowed BLM to charge fees and manage things, um, those statutes were not retroactive. So if you had been using the land for grazing and, you know, using the water on it, um, you were not subject to these things. So I think he's he's got a good case. I don't want to turn this into a, a legal discussion because that would bore no. lots of folks. Um, you know, and that was one of my first, um, I don't know, hesitations, for lack of a better term. I didn't want to throw my support behind this guy and say this is this is a hero this is a hero until i knew more about whether he was a good guy or a bad guy and you're right convoluted is probably the best word no matter whether he's in the right or the wrong if, if it takes um a couple minutes of lawyers explaining you know the situation then that means it's not clear and it's not going to be clear to the general population i'm a political guy i'm always thinking about how the general population perceives these things and so he wasn't the model um uh, plaintiff i almost said but he's he's not the model um person now that doesn't mean he's a bad guy and again i think he's in the right so that did complicate things so i took it kind of slow with the with the bundy um bundy family but then i as i say i'm pretty convinced that he's in the right um that's that's part one part two the bullying part yeah, I think the tactics were very heavy-handed. You and I had a conversation about a year ago after the Boston 
uh, bombing, yes. in which you and I both um, defended largely um, most of the aspects of the police search for the suspects in that case. Obviously, it wasn't a 100%, you know, carte blanche, police can do whatever they want sort of thing, but it was largely supportive of the police. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I took some heat um, from some of my uh, sort of ultra-libertarian friends, and um, so I'm not a cop hater. Um, um, I don't hate people in uniform. In fact, I have a lot of respect for them, and most of the time I think they, they do okay things. So that's that part of it. I think the BLM agents, especially in the tasering and the pushing people to the ground, um, I thought they were completely out of line. I don't claim to be a use-of-force expert, but again, thinking how the general population perceives things, what those guys did, uh, the BLM agents did, I think was out of line and was was bullying, not just that part of it, the whole build-up to it. Um, it seems to me that if, if Cliven Bundy and his family are these terrible, terrible public enemy number one people, um, why don't you wait until they go into town and arrest them if you've got a warrant? Um, they're, they're sort of, I don't know, more peaceful ways, more low-key ways to deal with this. I mean, the police wait for suspects to put themselves in a position where the police can take them into custody every day. I mean, that's a common occurrence. And so this really did have, to me, the flavor of the federal government was going to show this redneck rancher a thing or two. And I think it played out with what we saw in the, the videotape. So, yeah, I think I think it was bullying. I think it could have been worse in all candor. I mean, they could have come in with armored cars or something. Um, uh, but, you know, I guess that's a pretty low bar, right? Well, <laughs> well yeah. Do that. <laughs> and, you know, Glenn, let me add something to that. You know, the heavy-handed tactics. But let's roll the clock back a little bit. Let's go back to the 90s. You know, why is it all of a sudden the BLM has to put this desert tortoise on the endangered species list? And not only Bundy, but they for, they, they took away land from a lot of different ranchers. Um, Clive and Bundy is, seems to be the only one that has the guts to stand up to him. You know, I think that's kind of bullying, especially when you, when you have a family like the Bundys who were, again, I'm going to say it again, it's a fact. They were grazing. They were letting their cattle graze on that law, on that land, long before the Bureau of Land Management, a federal government agency, was ever even formed. So you know, all of a sudden now they got to protect this desert tortoise and start charging fines and telling the guy that his cattle can't graze uh, on there because this this big turtle might die. And then they have to taser his son, and they have to use these heavy-handed tactics. Now we have politicians, and I think everybody knows his name, calling the people who support Bundy domestic terrorists. So what's up with all this stuff? I, I think this is the natural progression of the extreme environmentalist movement. I'm not going to get off on that topic. This is a gun podcast after all, but... Um, I think it's just the natural progression. Um, in the book, in the first couple books, there are a few references to the Endangered Species Act and how the spotted owls were protected and completely destroyed the logging areas of western Washington, absolutely devastated the economy. Um, and, and so I've seen it uh, firsthand, and it's a, it's a powerful tool the, the government has, and it's too powerful, and it, it really hurts people, and it messes up their lives and their businesses and their families. So it was very heavy-handed, and I can't help thinking, just from the body language and some of the tactics and some of the words that were used by BLM, that they were really going to show this guy a thing or two. I, I, 
maybe I'm reading something into it, but this didn't seem like a typical enforcement of a court order. Let me put it that way. No, and the other thing, too, speaking of heavy-handed tactics, why did they have to go and seize 400 cattle? Um, how about put a lien on the guy's land? You know, the guy's an older guy. Uh, eventually, he's going to leave that land to his heirs, presumably his son. All right, put a million-dollar lien on the land. There's more peaceful ways to do it than seizing 400 cattle, showing up with taser guns, federal agents with guns and things like that, coming up to the fence and all that. It just kind of seemed, like you said, not not a, a typical way to enforce a court order. No, and the other thing is the Bureau of Land Management, I remember a few years ago, People would say when they talked about, I guess, the militarization of federal agencies, they would say the Bureau of Land Management has a SWAT team. Well, that's crazy. Why do they? And I thought to myself, Endangered Species Act. <laughs> that's why they have a SWAT team. They're going to they're going to use it for things like this. I think part of this was the Bureau of Land Management and the Park Service SWAT teams um, needed something to do. I mean, they needed to show that they had a purpose. I mean, I'm serious about this. I mean, they they prepare for these things and they plan for these things. I think that that had a whole lot to do with it. So it was it, it was an overreaction, and, and now I'm speaking politically because that's sort of how I think. Um, it, it was videotaped. The whole world got to see it. Now, most people in this country don't know about this and don't care. Um, and, uh, you know, baseball season has started, and they're thinking about baseball or whatever. Yeah, so I'm not saying the yeah. general public. but. We, we have it. We could see it. And everybody's got a video camera on their phone. And, boy, did that come in handy. And that is a, a great equalizer. So, yes, there was some bullying, and it was captured on video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and again, all right, you know, because uh, I had a listener call me out on, on last week's podcast. By the way, Glenn, this, this episode is mainly for um, today's survival show, but it might make an appearance on the Handgun World podcast. But I had a I had a listener say to me, well, you know, Bob, I mean, you know, he lost in court twice and he owes a bunch of fees, so he's not really an innocent party. And I get that. I get that. I think Mr. Bundy's position is what right does the federal government have in this? Because from what I understand, his state and county fees were paid up. And, you know, what is it? The, the federal government owns something like 82 percent of Nevada's land and a lot of other western states. You know, what's up with that? Yeah, no, it's it's really out of hand. And here in the West, it's something we've been talking about for a long time, and it seems like the rest of the country didn't understand exactly what we were talking about. As far as losing twice in court goes, um, I'm, an, I'm an attorney. I can tell you that that doesn't mean much to me, losing twice in court. Um, I, and I'm not going to say all courts are bad or anything like that, but I will say this from firsthand experience, years of firsthand experience. It is extremely difficult to beat the government in court, I'm talking civil matters, and um, it is increasingly difficult to beat the government in court. Cases that I would have won a few years ago are now I'm now losing, and I, I just sit there and scratch my head and say, you know, am I just making up excuses and you know, <laughs> saying, oh, I can't I can't win because of politics. I hope I'm not doing that, but um, I can I can tell you that it's just really really hard to win in court, especially a federal agency appearing in federal court. Um, I mean, the odds of, I almost said a civilian, but the odds <laughs> of a, a citizen winning are are pretty, pretty small. And so, I mean, and the other thing is, cases I've worked on, quite a few of them actually, I've lost at the county court level, I've lost at the court of appeals level, and I've won at the state supreme court level. So 
w- losing two court cases to me is just kind of a warm up. Especially to the, especially to the government, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's all I do. You're just kind of, you're just kind of getting started if you lose a couple of government court cases. We're just making a record. We're putting everything in order so the Supreme Court or some other court that is elected and has to think about things a little more clearly um, has something to look at. <laughs> well, you know, Glenn, you mentioned something earlier, and uh, I've been doing some research, and I'm going to borrow this, and I'll, I'll give credit in the show notes. Basically, there were three reasons why the federal government backed down. You hit on one of them earlier, technology. You know, people were shooting cell phone videos of this, and it gave the world, once it got put on the news, uh, a a look into what was going on that the federal agents were doing. But, you know, there's another reason, and that's the state's rights reasons. You know, the governor of, of Nevada and the sheriff of Clark County, they basically, you know, I mean, they didn't come to the federal government's defense here. Um, you know, the government and the sheriff, to their credit, didn't favor the feds as being the more powerful party in this conflict. So it kind of makes you wonder here about the federal versus states rights issue. And really, the third reason I think it ended the way it did is the grassroots. You know, you had people that are now being called domestic terrorists coming to the support of Bundy. And it kind of it kind of had the little eerie feelings of. Waco and the Elian Gonzalez conflicts, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And boy, you hit on that thing about the uh, the local police um, kind of being the moderating force. Um, folks that I know that were on the ground that called me and told me these things, um, all of them said that the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, which was doing a lot of the crowd control, uh, they were the ones up at the at the gate, basically, the in the famous video now, um, that the Las Vegas Metro officers were outstanding. They were courteous. They were extremely professional. Um, and, uh, you know, these are a lot of hardcore patriots I talked to who said, geez, I wish, I wish the BLM guys were like the local police. And, and that was a factor. Um, a lot of folks told me that the local police calmed things down and, and, you know, might have been a decisive factor in this thing not going overboard because the BLM guys probably would have driven it overboard. And there's a really solid reason for why that happened, and I touch on it in the in the books. And that is the local police force, they live in the local community. Right. They they reflect the the culture and the values and all of that of the local community. Plus because they live in the local community, they're not going to do anything tyrannical because and I hate to say this but it's true you know, they've got to think about themselves and their family um, right. perhaps being targeted. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying it goes through their minds. There are some characters, um, you read about them in Book 8 uh, in particular, um, Bennington, um, the, the sheriff's deputy Bennington, who's a perfect example of that. And I think that played out because we know that the BLM teams um, came from different states because there are reports of, uh, of that and that there were you know indicators that some were from Oregon and, and other states. So you have the the SWAT guys coming in from uh, other parts of the country, and they get to be the tough guys and and do all that. And one of the examples, by the way, of some one of the contrasts, I guess, between the local and the BLM um, is, is telling a friend of mine was driving back after the big confrontation, and he uh, he got in the in the traffic. Basically, it was the the Las Vegas local police were escorting the BLM. Um, Troopers, I guess. Is that the right word? Um, Agents, yeah. Out. <laughs> really? And, uh, he, he said it was amazing. Um, he was waving to the Las Vegas police. They were waving back and smiling and, you know, just pleasant, normal people. 
he drove by the BLM guys and apparent I don't know if he had like a don't tread on me thing or if they, they somehow knew that he was um, a patriot. They flipped him off. I have never in my life, and I've been around a fair number of federal agents really? and prosecutors. I have never in my life heard of federal agents flipping off somebody. That is outrageous. And it seems like a small thing. People are saying, oh, geez, people flip people off all the time. Not federal agents. That is completely out of line, and it is very telling about the mindset that these BLM guys had. They they view them they view the the protesters, patriots, citizens, whatever you want to call them, as the enemy. That's what you do to people you have no respect for and you hate. And that is really disturbing to me because if this sentiment of flipping off people is is prevalent among federal agents. And by the way, I don't I, I know a few federal agents and none of them are like this. In fact, they're they're stand up guys. So right. I don't know what what's in the water at the BLM SWAT team, but they're drinking something and it's turning them into very aggressive, I think, um, bullies with very bad judgment. And look what happened. Now, you know, from now on everyone will say, Oh, BLM, you know, what a joke of a law enforcement agency or something like that. So they really hurt themselves. They almost started uh, <laughs> the second American revolution. And I'm trying not to exaggerate, but I think it could have gone that way. I mean, we've seen the pictures of the, the Patriot snipers um, uh, behind the cement barricades on the, uh, the opposite overpass. And now, Luckily, folks kept their fingers out of the trigger guard. You know, we talk about that, right? <laughs> yeah, they kept their they kept their booger hook off the bang switch. <laughs> exactly. Thank goodness. And I don't I don't know. At least uh, the Patriot uh, riflemen looked looked pretty professional and pretty serious, and they didn't look like they were out playing army or something like that. So I, I mean, I'm not surprised they did a good job. I'm very very thankful that nothing went crazy. But it's my theory, complete speculation. That if Las Vegas, and this is from what people on the ground told me, if Las Vegas Metro would not have shown up and been the professional um, peacemakers, uh, law enforcement officers used to be called peace officers. And, and there's a lot of meaning in that term, peace officer. And these Las Vegas guys were acting as peace officers, good on them. If it wouldn't have been for that calming force, I think there's a pretty good chance those BLM guys would have would have done something stupid um, and there would have been shots fired and there would have been shots returned and there would have been a call for militia guys to come and back them up and there would have been helicopters and armored columns and there would have been emergency decrees and it would have been, you know, in Nevada and elsewhere, it would have been ugly. Thank goodness that didn't happen, but it gave us a glimpse into how close we are in this country, how we are we're on edge, and I, I think our side acted honorably, and the other side did not. Yeah, I know, but we're the ones being called domestic terrorists. <laughs> um, you know, And again, I don't want to just pick on Bureau of Land Management because I've got a funny feeling that there are other federal agencies that probably are just as amped up as the BLM. They just haven't had the opportunity to show it yet. And this is not an anti-federal government statement I'm trying to make. I don't want I don't want people saying that I'm an anti-federal government person or that this is an anti-federal government show. So for any of you clowns that might be thinking that way or listening in on this or pointing fingers at me, I'll say it again. This is not an anti-federal government uh, show. It's just that 
you know, the heavy handedness, like you said, that was on display for everybody to see, including this, the, the stealing of the, or the confiscating of the cattle for a while and all that. I mean, this is a guy's livelihood. This is the federal government interfering with a guy's livelihood, especially when you take his cattle and things like that. And, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder how much of this are we going to take? Yeah. And I, this, and that's a great segue into, I think the big takeaway from the whole Bundy Ranch situation, and this was a little bit controversial and caused a lot of discussion on my Facebook page. Um, again, remember, I approach things from a political standpoint. I think Bundy Ranch was a huge win for the Patriots, and, and the, the response to that from, from some folks was, yeah, but they're going to arrest him, and yeah, they're going to they're gonna take his, you know, they're going to come back, and they're going to come back with armor, and they're going to do this and that. And you know what? That's entirely possible. I don't know what the Bureau of Land Management is going to do. I don't think the federal government gives up easily. Um, I think that they've been humiliated, and they're they're not going to let this turn out well for the Bundy family. Um, no, probably I not. I, yeah, I you know wouldn't want to be the Bundy family. So, and I acknowledge that. And I think the the people who were disagreeing with me, their point was, well, how can something be a win if these good Bundy folks end up, you know, I don't know, getting arrested or having their land seized and an IRS thing or whatever. How can that be a win? And and I said, you need to not look at this, and I hate to say this and people will get mad at me, but whatever. You can't look at this solely looking at the, the Bundys. The Bundys are not the unit of analysis here. You've got to look at this in the bigger picture. And I, I know that sounds like I'm sort of sacrificing the Bundys, and, I, and I'm, I'm not. I mean, they're probably really nice people, but um, what happened on that overpass was that an armed federal team backed down, turned around, and left because there were civilians with video cameras. There were also a bunch of well-armed civilians, and there would have been a firefight, and a lot of innocent people would have died. Right. And Everybody knows that. You can tell from watching that video. You don't need to be a tactical expert to see that a whole bunch of innocent people right up on that gate in particular um, would have been cut to pieces. And so the federal government backed down. And I'm going to say that again. The federal government backed down, and that's a huge win. And people said, oh, you know, no, it's not. And I said, no, this is Boston Tea Party material. And here's what I mean by that. A couple years before the revolution, uh, the Boston Tea Party, everyone's familiar with the story. You know, people came onto a British ship and threw tea into the harbor because they were protesting the fact that the tea was taxed. And that was the spark that really got people to think the British are not invincible. And that's what I'm getting at. That's the parallel. The British are not invincible. The federal government is not invincible. And for all those folks out there that said, yeah, but things, bad things are going to happen to the Bundy, so how can this be a win? Well, let's look at history. The Boston Tea Party conspirators, domestic terrorists that they were. Sure. A, a lot of them went to jail. A lot of them were killed. A lot of them had bad things happen to them. So if your unit of analysis is what happened to the people that were you know, involved in the protest, um, they, they had a bad time just like the Bundys are probably going to have a bad time. But guess what? Nobody remembers that because it was that moment when the general population saw that the illegitimate authorities, in the case of the British, were not all powerful. And that's why this was a win, because at least in the patriot community, that seems to be the only part of the country that was really paying attention to all of this. We now know that 
the federal government um, will back down if you show up with video cameras, um, which is key. I mean, <laughs> that's right. the part I'm going to focus on, not the gun part. Um, when you when you show up and you know you've got you've got a thousand or two thousand people, the numbers vary. Showing up those pictures of the of the overpass and everything are are just amazing. Um, in fact, there's a great meme out there that's got the picture of all the the patriots and the cowboys lined up facing off um, on that overpass, and it says teamwork, get stuff done, um, and that's very true. And that's shown us that we can get stuff done. We had we had a communications capability. We had patriot radio operators that you know on on like two hours notice. Um, came driving in. We had a complete communication set up. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't encrypted, and yeah, the federal government was listening. Okie dokie, whatever. I mean, let's not get out of hand here. Let's not, you know, lose our minds. But that's something that the feds noticed. They, they're thinking, wow, we could shut down cell towers, and these guys have ham radio folks. Um, oh, my goodness. You know, so right. we right. showed the federal government that this isn't as easy as saying we have a court order, we win, because – Bob, I'm going to guess 99% of the time, and this could explain one of the reasons the BLM agents acted this way, 99% of the time, federal agents show up and say, we've got a court order, and people say, okay, what do you need? Now, here you go, here's my stuff, or whatever, I'll go to, you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, they, they comply. Always, yeah, they always just they always just do it, and um, we're seeing that, you know, isn't the case here. And this is kind of personal. Um, I don't think this will happen or anything, but I must say, this was another reason I thought this was a win. I don't ever expect to be Cliven Bundy, right? I'm just a guy who wrote a couple books. But it's really reassuring for patriots out there that we know that if something like this happens to us, maybe a couple thousand people will show up and support us. And that's huge. I'm telling you, that's huge. It is It is huge. It is huge. And I think that's what's demonstrated. That's what this is demonstrated to the American people. And I think that's why you know, there's this domestic terrorist label being put on these citizens, uh, some of them armed, some of them armed with video cameras, some of them armed with rifles. That's why they're being called that, because, you know, they're, they're, the federal government is trying to put the onus on the people saying that we're the terrorists when it seems like oftentimes they're the bullies. I mean, you know, let's look at another fact here. Another fact, a big beacon of hypocrisy you know, the BLM supposedly protecting these these tortoises, well, the BLM deliberately killed hundreds of those tortoises. And there's a lot of herds of wild horses out there that were also overgrazing the land. And they killed a lot more of those desert tortoises than Clive and Bundy's cattle ever did. So, you know, you're looking at, it just kind of makes you wonder, what is up with this particular federal agency? Why did they seem so emboldened in this case to be able to try to pull this off? And then it makes you start to wonder, well, what's next? Yeah. Yeah, both for the Bundys and for other folks out there. Um, yeah, exactly. I could, I could really see uh, federal agencies, BLM in particular, wanting to reassert their reputation and and go out and get some quick wins, I guess, something like that, and go and you know be shown as being active and and doing things, and on the larger political scale, um, it's pretty typical for um, uh, political leaders who are are losing on the international stage. And President Obama has had a really bad year on the international stage, Crimea, Syria, elsewhere, to want to 
regain some of their credibility and toughness by cracking down domestically. So I could see that playing into it too. But um, yeah, what's next? I mean, it could be it could be Endangered Species Act. I mean, there are so many laws covering so many topics. Everybody that listening to me is probably breaking a federal law of some kind right now. Maybe they tore a label off of a mattress or, you know, maybe they didn't dispose of a light bulb correctly or something like that. But there are plenty of things and and the government can kind of pick and choose and go do pretty much whatever they want. So, um, yeah, I, I expect to see more of this. And I, I don't know, domestic politics wise, um, the the other side, the folks that love government so much, um, they you know, you can really power up your base um, by by going out and going after these so-called domestic terrorists. I mean, it it makes for a lot of good watching on MSNBC, I guess is what I'm saying. So. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And like you said, a lot of us are probably breaking federal laws, and we break federal laws every day. And, you know, you just said something a minute ago. If the government can pick and choose what they want to go after and what they don't, um, I think the definition of that is bullying. Yeah. You know, um, well, good. I'm glad you weighed in on it, and I think we've kind of, unless there's something else you want to say, I think we've kind of probably exhausted this topic, don't you think? I think so. Great conversation on it, though. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, I understand since we are, since since the subject of guns did come up in this interview, I understand you got some new ones. Yeah, I have two new guns, and I don't buy a lot of guns. I'm not the guy who's always getting a bunch of new guns. Um, but um, the uh, first one, uh, Glock 42, everyone's saying, what? I've never heard of a Glock 42. Well, that's because they're brand new. They're the 380 autos, and they're shrunken down. They're probably three-quarters the size um, of a Glock 26 or something. And they're single stack, so they're nice and thin. Very, very easy to carry. I, uh, I got rid of the LCP a couple shows ago. We were uh, Oh, you did? About, okay. Yeah, we were joking about the LCP, and uh, as I put it, um, um, Here's something you never hear. Um, hey, not trying to outdo anybody, but I do have an LCP. Um, and so anyway, really bad trigger pull. Um, but anyway, great guns. I mean, uh, if, if, if you got an LCP and that's the gun you have, awesome, great, carry it. That's good. Um, so anyway, uh, Glock uh, 42, um, I, have a, I have a friend who, you know, learned that one was available. They are magnificent, Bob. I mean, they're a Glock. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome to start with. The trigger pull... Between the Glock and the LCP is is unmatched, and the uh, Glock 42 is a little bit longer, um, but it's still very very concealable. And like the LCP, the Glock 42 is small enough to be the gun that you carry when you can't carry a gun, right? Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, as far as the size goes, and so really really happy about that. I uh, I knew I knew that 380 auto ammunition was kind of hard to find but i hadn't bought any in a while and uh i was reacquainted <laughs> with how hard it is to find and um yeah it's hard to find and it's expensive too yeah but um i'm gonna i'm gonna break this uh glock 42 in and it's 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 one of those love affair guns i mean i just you know i pull it out of the holster and just look at it longingly and uh that sort of thing <laughs> so you know a a boy and his gun. It's a it's a wonderful thing. Well, I've been kind of I've been kind of resisting it because I thought you know eh it's just another 380. I already have one, uh, a nice one, a Car P380, which I like quite a bit, which is significantly smaller and much more easy to pocket. But then again, you know the Glock 42 is so popular, and from what I understand, 
it's a soft shooter. Is it a soft shooter? Candidly, I got it a couple days ago and have not shot it. Oh, okay. Well, from what I understand, it's fairly soft, at least as far as miniature 380s go. I bet when you press the trigger on it, you're going to find it's more pleasant to shoot than your LCP. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, probably so. So, uh, very excited about that. And then, um, second one, uh, and a couple shows ago, I mentioned that Century Arms was going to have me do some testing and evaluation of their C39 AK-47, which is American-made, entirely made in America, which, by the way, when the Russians go and invade neighbors and things like that, and there's bands of ammunition and probably <laughs> probably parts kits are drying up, having the ability to make AKs entirely in the U.S. is probably a smart business move. Um, I think so. Yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> so it's a, it's a milled receiver. What do you think of it? Um, I haven't shot it. I just I did my FFL transfer about three hours ago. As a matter of fact, I'm telling you, it's solid. It is it is absolutely gorgeous. I got the um, the classic version, which has the wood stock and uh, foregrip and or forehandle, and um, it's in this this beautiful black and gray uh, wood. And um, I'm not usually the the guy with pretty guns because mine are pretty functional and they get you know thrown yeah. around the back of a truck and stuff like that. But um, this is an absolutely just beautiful gun, and it's it's really substantial. It's not heavy, but it's it's really rugged, and um, I think this is going to be one of those one of those really solid just tank of a gun. I mean, still light and, and nimble and everything. But um, you know, you you pick up a gun and you look at it, and you can pretty much tell, okay, this is a this is an inexpensive gun, or you know, this is a really expensive gun. Um, and I think this is a really well-made gun. And the MSRP is six ninety-nine, and so the retail is really like six hundred, five ninety-nine, or whatever it is. And so it's a U.S.-made milled receiver AK. Yeah, that's for about great. Six hundred bucks, and I mean, wow! Um, how are you going to beat that? Now the proof will be in the pudding with the with the shooting, um, and uh, going to videotape that and everything, and that'll be great. And um, Looking forward to that. Uh, it's got a Tapco G2 trigger. Uh, it's got an extended mag release, uh, which is really nice. Uh, it's like a big old paddle kind of thing. Um, oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah, instead of the, the standard one. And it's got a proprietary um, sight system uh, that I think is, is an improvement. But it's just a, a solid, awesome gun. It's one of those guns that's simultaneously one that you're really proud of because it's well-built and, and it's just beautiful. But also... You know, I could see throwing it in the back of the truck and not really worrying about it. You know what I mean? So um, I'm I'm really excited because if if there's a $600 AK that's awesome, that is going to be a really big deal because that's kind of what's missing now. Now there are $1,200 and $2,000 AKs that are awesome, no question about that. Um, but something that's that's not that expensive, but still it does a really good job is going to be cool. So when I when I shoot that. Um, give you a full report because it, it could be it could be a pretty awesome thing so i just like the hearing the words american made ak yeah that's kind of what i like hearing you know <laughs> uh, i mean it's like uh, now you're you don't have the black synthetic stock you have the actual wood stock right yeah exactly okay yeah, okay yeah um well that's awesome so um you know th those are cool I enjoy shooting those and 
Um, I think that's, you know, again, it's, it's all citizens should be, in my opinion, should have arms of some kind. And uh, unfortunately, there are parts of the USA and even some of my international listeners where owning such an AK is prohibited. But those of us that live in the areas where we can own one, get you one. Yeah. They I don't think go that's down good. In price and they don't get easier to find. Um, there, I mean, if you if you have the money, you, you ought to do it. Um, you ought to have done it in the past, to be very candid. Um, but you can make up for some lost time <laughs> and uh, and do what you need to do because you know we're we're another. Uh, let's take. I mean, not to reiterate the, the Bundy Ranch thing, but if that would have gone hot and there would have been bullets flying. Um, forget like executive orders taking away guns. Forget all the legal stuff because whether that happens or not, I don't think matters as much as everyone would have run out and bought the last couple guns that are out there, the last couple boxes of ammunition. So it's not just the legal stuff that makes guns hard to come by in a pinch. It's the market. That's the main thing. Um, there's no executive order outlawing 22 long rifle, but I mean, I saw some stuff today online that was 10 times what I paid for it a couple years ago. Sure. 10 times. And so that's, I think, a bigger, you know, threat than like the government, to be very honest with you. Yeah. I think so, too. And, you know, all right, since, since we're back on uh, a little bit of a government topic here, um, a listener, and, and I know we're kind of running up against a, uh, a time constraint. you got to go real quickly, so I'll be very um, mindful of your time. A listener kind of recognized your knowledge of history, especially reading books one and two, and he said that, you know, he understands that Grant in the book, that character is actually you. So he said, boy, I bet you, ben, I bet you Glenn knows some stuff about history. Yeah. So. I thought I would ask you just a simple question. Mm-hmm. I, I know you don't like to get into detailed predictions, but do you think do you think there's some history that is likely to repeat itself soon? Yeah, and I can see combinations of history actually uh, repeating themselves. That is to say, I don't think what we're heading into is the exact replica of the Revolutionary War, Civil War, or the Great Depression. Um, I see blendings of of those three things. And by that, I don't mean we're going to simultaneously have all three things going on. Right. Um, I, mean, I mean that it'll in some ways be like the Great Depression, um, in some ways be like the Civil War, but I don't think it'll be, you know, people in blue and people in gray, you know, squaring off against each other. And there won't be nice, neat lines and all that other stuff. And there probably won't be full-on, I don't know, frontal assaults and those sorts of things. I think it'll be a lot more subtle and and indirect and um, small-scale and partisan sort of things. Right. Um, A lot of information war, um, a lot of controlling of resources. um, um, And so there's that. And then the the revolutionary war part, um, that could be, you know, I think of all those three, that would be the one that is the most, that provides the best model um and you know one of the things and and it's written about a lot because it's my my real passion when it comes to the history part of all this Mm -hmm. is the difference between the american revolution and the french revolution and in a nutshell the french went bananas and started killing everybody and revenge killing and decades when you get down to it decades of of just wars and killing people and coups and counter coups and I mean all this kind of stuff 
Uh, and the reason, I think, the main reason, is that the French didn't uh, forgive and try to reconcile and try to get on with their lives. That's right. In contrast, the, the Americans in the American Revolution went out of their way and I think uh, extended grace to bad people who didn't deserve it. Well, that's the, that's the definition of grace, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so they were gracious um, and, uh, you know, bit their tongue and basically didn't kill people that that had done bad things. Now, there were some that, that, that were prosecuted and some that were driven to Canada and, and all those kind of things. I'm not saying it was all peaceful, but, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't neighbor versus neighbor. No. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that kind of thing. So um, that's what I foresee being the big difference. That's what I'm hoping is the big difference, and that's what is alluded to in the books as the big difference. Um, and uh, you know, I'm trying to. <laughs> so what you're saying is really a, what you're saying is really a blending. A blending of things that have happened in in the, in the history, but you know, unfortunately, could end up having the same type of negative effect. Yeah, um, yeah, there can be the same, yeah, um, unpleasantness. All three of those events were were unpleasant in different ways and in different different degrees, um, and and so I see that. But I don't want to imply again that it's like the the triple whammy. That's not where I'm going with this. No, it'll be, no, it'll be different. Um, very, very. Different, but in some ways similar. So that's that's what I see. Very interesting. Um, and you know, do you, what do you think? I mean, I've been kind of saying that I don't think that the ballot box is going to be the ultimate way to solve this. I know you're a political guy, but you're also a survival guy, um, evidenced by your books and your interviews. Seems to me. Uh, way on, way in on this here for the last five or six minutes. It seems to me this this train wreck that we appear to be on is going to be stopped mainly by people taking control of their own lives and getting much much more into survival than going and voting in new politicians. Absolutely, well said. Couldn't agree more. Um, I don't even. I don't think about elections anymore. I mean, I, I do <laughs> for business, but um, uh, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, especially in a state like Washington State where I live. Now, there are some states where it does matter, and there might be some local um, elections and some, some state legislative things where, you know, it would still matter. So I'm not going to be glib and say, oh, you know, don't worry about it all. But um, if people are putting all their eggs in the electoral basket, like I think people did in the past, um, I think that, that's a mistake. I mean, there's a role for it, and in some instances, it could be, uh, you know, a, a difference maker. But it's it's uh, just one little teeny thing, and it's it's actually like second or third tier of importance as far as I'm concerned. And people doing their own thing, being self reliant, and not um, <laughs> not creating greater need for more government um, is is yeah. the way to is the way to take care of that. Yeah. Well, I'm you know who I'm afraid of is I'm not afraid of people that are your age and my age cuz a lot of us get it. It's the younger generation that I'm worried about because they're being spoon-fed and made to believe, you know, the government's the answer and that's kind of their line of thinking and they carry that thinking 
not only to the ballot box when they get old enough, but they carry it to school and they carry it in their daily lives. And all of a sudden that entitlement just seems to get larger and larger. Yep, and that's, I mean, there's pooling data <laughs> that backs up what you just said, and it is it is a problem. And see, that's the thing. Not only will elections not fix it, I think elections are the cause of this. Oh, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting take there. Yeah, true. That's, yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> that might be subject for another uh, another interview. But okay, Glenn. Well, I you know I know you're you're kind of time constrained. That's a great way to end it. I think. Um, thanks for a good interview. This was good stuff. I'm glad that you weighed in on the Bundy situation because, you know, I recognized it pretty quickly um, as as some government bullying, and it seems like there's there's a, there's some folks out there that. That disagree with me, but you, you seem to think it is. Yep, I think we agree on this. Yeah, good. Glenn, thank you. Talk a little bit about book eight, and uh, isn't there another production coming up you'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about? Yeah, uh, book eight uh, came out uh, March 30th and is is doing very, very well, so that's great. The other, the other thing, and it's one of these things that I can either talk about it for two minutes or two hours, but it's going to be two minutes, I guess, given the time constraints. Um, we have a Kickstarter campaign. Um, people can go to 299days.com and see about that. That's a way of raising money to do things, in this case, a two-hour feature-length movie. And uh, we would love to turn the books into uh, at least one movie. Um, we've actually storyboarded out three movies, so there could be as many as three. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, it costs money um, to do these independently. Why do it independently? Because Hollywood never in a million years is going to you know, want this message to get out, this you know, independent, self-reliant, patriot message. So uh, because we're independent, self-reliant kind of folks, we're going to do it ourselves. I mean, <laughs> that's what we do, right? We yeah, don't, cool. We, we don't wait for anybody else to do it for us. And so that's going along. That ends uh, May 4th. And um, the, the thing to note about the Kickstarter thing is is that you make a pledge. And if we meet our funding goal, then your credit card is charged. So, it, you know, you're not going to get charged money, and then there's no movie made. Um, you know, so if, if we meet the funding goal, we make the movie, and your credit card gets charged. So there's, you know kind of assurance built in there that we're not just taking a bunch of people's money or something like that and then you know then not producing what we said we would so that's uh, and kickstarter's been used for i think ninety thousand projects in the past few years um movies and records and and people have patented inventions and done all kinds of things on kickstarter so it's widely known it's legit is my point well i think that's kind of cool and uh i'm going to help you like i'm doing right now uh, promote that. So go to 299days.com. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, the Kickstarter initiative. I think it'd be kind of cool to have at least one movie of it. I think that'd be really neat. And I'm glad you're doing it independently. Yeah, no, that's the only the only way to do it. And when people go on the website and look on the Kickstarter campaign, they can see uh, an eight-minute video trailer and they can see the team you can see the team's faces and you get to hear them talk it's it's really cool so if you've been following the books and you're a fan of the team um you can see them and it, it was really neat how that turned out so i'm very happy about that i haven't seen the trailer but as soon as we hang up i'm gonna watch it yeah <laughs> great glenn thanks uh folks this is glenn tate he's the author 
of the uh, magnificent book series, 299 Days. Uh, get your copy. Get it on my Amazon page. Go to 299days.com. Let's make a movie out of this thing. Glenn, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Bob. Really appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Well, many thanks, Glenn Tate. I appreciate you donating your time once again. What do you think of that, folks? Uh, what do you think of that discussion there? Did you know some of those facts? And I'm sure there's a whole lot more that maybe we don't know, but it sure seems like it kind of raises some questions about how exactly the federal government and some of the agencies how they think about dealing with us little lowly people you know we're just we're just the people we're just the people even though even though we are supposed to be giving them their power and taking it away when it's appropriate i we've we've got this all all backwards in this country in my opinion but anyway I thought I would do this podcast, do this interview with Glenn, throw that out there. Uh, if you got some comments, don't forget about my voicemail, 210-646-1727. That's 210-646-1727. Leave a voicemail. And if you want to be on the air, I'll put you on the air. As a matter of fact, I'm going to assume that you want your voicemail on the air unless you tell me in the voicemail that you don't want it to be on the air. And I'm going to be doing a voicemail episode coming up pretty soon. In fact, that might even be the next episode that I do because I've got a small collection of voicemails. Once again, that's area code 210-646-1727. Hey, if you like what I do here at today's Survival Show, if this show helps you with your life, with your prepping, and just overall improving yourself. Uh, would you mind supporting my show? I don't have paid sponsors. I purposely don't have paid sponsors because I don't want you to listen to a bunch of commercials about stuff that you might not be interested in anyway. You can support my show by going to Amazon on my Amazon store and buying whatever you're going to buy on Amazon. If there's something that you find a deal on Amazon and you want to buy it, go to todayssurvival.com. There's two S's in that, by the way, todayssurvival.com. Click the Amazon store page and you'll find a direct link. Save that link, bookmark it, whatever. Use that to do your Amazon shopping and it'll help support my show. Also, the Survival Champions podcasts are available. Those are exclusive podcasts with a lot of good information that have never been on this show before. White Bears videos will be coming out soon. I'll be announcing that. But right now, I've got several podcasts available for $25 each or $75 for the whole collection. If you want to invest in those, that's another way to support my show. Well, with all that said, thanks for listening to yet another episode of today's Survival Show. I'm Bob Main. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are thanks for listening catch you next time goodbye